I didn't know everybody was there. <laughs> We've all been watching you. What was going on? <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking among ourselves, talking about the election. <laughs> everybody vote today? Right. Yeah, instead of meditating, I walk down the street to vote. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> I have to say, Brock, I love your presentation there. Yeah. That's Brock. Love your sound effects. Wow, that's cool. Here we are. We couldn't hear what you just said. And we won't hear it again until... Man Manjushri. Oh, lovely. Very nice. Thank you. Paper mache. Um, oh. And some jewelry and a little bit of this, a little of that. So you made it? Oh, yeah. Oh, lovely. Great. I'm a sculptor. Beautiful. Okay. It had a very live quality to it. I was saying this is an unusual, an unusual one. So now I know why. Thank you. It reminds me of the figures that MTV used to have early on when they first had uh, music videos. The figures on the moon. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> Let's begin uh, with our usual chant. In order that all attention be Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all aspects of the comfortable omniscience, may be derived in the clear air of intellect, may much be accomplished. We all survived uh, Halloween. Okay, so tonight we have the, uh, the remaining sections of the introduction and, uh, and uh, two of the main root texts to go through. Plug in my so I believe we're on page 109. Does anyone disagree? Thank you for confirming that. Bongjun Dorje's unique explanation of the seventh consciousness. What do we usually think of seventh consciousness? The Klesha consciousness. It's the bad guy, right? Me, 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 me. Me, 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 little me, mini me, big me. <laughs> the close relationship between the afflicted mind, the immediate mind, the mental consciousness, and the mental sense faculties 
a faculty are described in great detail in, in these texts. So the afflicted mind is one aspect of the seventh. It turns out the immediate mind is the other aspect of the seventh consciousness. The mental consciousness is the sixth consciousness, and the mental sense faculty is the sense base upon which arises the mind sense consciousness. The basic position of Rangjun Dorji is that the seventh consciousness, called mentation, interesting term, interesting way to refer to it, general mental activity mentation, uh, consists of two aspects, the afflicted mind and the immediate mind, the latter of which is also referred to as stainless mentation, stainless mental activity. Not stained, excuse me, with the latter being the primary aspect of the seventh consciousness. These two aspects are mixed until the fundamental change of state of the seventh consciousness occurs, referring to enlightenment. In other words, mentation has two faces. The actual, immediate, or stainless mind is nothing but consciousness's own essence. While it is presented as the afflicted mind from the perspective of its being mistaken about itself. So this uh, very radical view of the seventh consciousness, normally the seventh consciousness is exclusively viewed as the afflicted consciousness, but here Rangjung Dorje is, is uh, adding an aspect of the seventh consciousness that's sort of neutral, stainless mentation, just sort of neutral mental activity that is basically the attention. When we say immediate mind, it's basically like the moment-to-moment -moment attention quality of the mind. Question. Um, yes. Um, so would would this like be kind of like our witness? It does seem that way, right? It seems like it's it's that quality of mind that's watching. It's like the watcher, right? Is it is it that, or is it actually more underlying? quality of just pure, simple awareness. That seems like two different possibilities there. Yeah, I think the the underlying awareness would be more like the eighth consciousness. But uh, I don't know, that's a good question. Let's see if he clarifies that for us. Well, if it thinks it's itself, then it, it seems like it's a little more advanced than just an underlying awareness. But the thinks it's itself part is not the immediate part. That's the klesha part. Yeah, but how how do you divide these parts up? Actually, I mean, it's all space. Yes, that's true. But we do it for the sake of having something to talk about, right? Right, but it's still they're both interpenetrating each other. So. Of course, all eight of them are on. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's all space. <laughs> I was just thinking we should next year we should do. Uh, Halloween costume where we could all go as the eight consciousnesses or different aspects of mind. Anybody up for a mass Halloween costume? <laughs> Alia Vishnana. That would be a funny one. Wow. It reminded me a little bit of the three natures, though, because of that pivot that goes on with the the uh, the the one in the middle. Yeah, the middle guy. <laughs> the dependent. 
independent, thank you. Yeah, it sort yeah. of reminded me of that, that there's a mishmash in there. Yeah, yeah, it can go both ways, sort of. Yeah. Neat. Okay. Uh, let's see. In other words, mentation has two faces. The actual immediate or stainless mind is nothing but consciousness's own essence, while it is presented as the afflicted mind from the perspective of its being mistaken about itself, just as a small child who, not recognizing him or herself in a mirror. I'm sorry. <laughs> then searches for him or herself and tries to interact with this other person he or she seems to see in the mirror. Who's that person in the mirror? Thus the seventh consciousness is pre presented as the afflicted mind from the perspective of its distorting aspect, misconceiving the alia consciousness as a self and being associated with the four afflictions here called ignorance, the views about a real personality, self-conceit and attachment to the self. It is called immediate mind in its dynamic aspect of being the continuum of triggering, the continuum of triggering the arising and ceasing of the other six consciousnesses from and back into the Alia consciousness. What, a, what an odd phrase. So maybe to start from the end of that sentence, we have um, the Alia consciousness is sort of completely open, vast, spacious, and it contains everything and all possibilities, and has both the deposits of past activity as well as the birthing of new activity, and sort of creates the world that we experience as being the, the container, the external world, the environment. And um, somehow, waves are triggered out of the alia into experiences. And um, so uh, Carl is here saying that there's a continuum of triggering, that there's like this triggering happens in a continuum, one moment after another moment after another moment of mind, 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 of different types of mind, various consciousnesses, sixth, uh, and then the other sense consciousnesses and so forth. Um, but that the dynamic aspect of the seventh consciousness is that it, it uh, does that triggering. It is called immediate mind in its dynamic aspect of being the continuum of triggering the arising and ceasing of the other six. It is expressed as stainless mentation once it is embraced by the immaculate dharmas that are grounded in the enlightenment of a Buddha. What an odd sentence also. Once it is embraced by the immaculate dharmas that are grounded in the enlightenment of a Buddha. So this seems to be talking about post-enlightenment uh, or post-transformation of the seventh consciousness into an enlightened stainless mind. One question about the prior sentence that you just took apart. Yep. The when you were talking about that continuum of triggering, how do, would you say that compares or relates to um, that uh, notion from other tenant systems or from the the way that um, the previous moment uh, 
is the cause of the next moment or the you know the conditions for the next moment that whole notion of the previous moment has always found i've always found it a little puzzling but um yeah it the immediately sounds a little bit preceding. like the, the preceding it's, it's basically that's why it's called the immediate mind because it's the immediately preceding mind upon which then we experience thoughts or sensations or memories or analysis or this or that. So it, the implication is that it happens in between every moment of other types of mind. Or, or is it essentially the same, is it basically the same phenomena that we were talking about in those other terms, this, this immediately preceding condition that's all going on in this, is this like a different word for that, or you think it's a little bit of a it different? Seems, it seems to be a, the same thing. It seems mm -hmm. to be referring to that mind, which is the immediate condition for the arising of other types of mind, and sort of occupies this intermediary place between the Aliyah Vijnana, the eighth consciousness, and the other consciousnesses. It sounds like this is their explanation for our sense of continuum. Yes, thank you. That's good. Good way to present it. That's helpful. Yeah, yeah. So AC. Well, although, just one question about that: it, isn't the eighth consciousness also posited as the basis of continuation? It is, but it's we're not really consciously aware of it. So this is more what we. This is what it's active. Aspect. Yeah, that's why I I sort of affiliated. I think of it as the attention. Yeah, that's our attention. Yeah, it sounds like there's a doing kind of quality to this. Yeah, active. Yeah, whereas the Aliyavijana is more passive. Just so slicing that, up that space. <laughs> that's right. Well, you know, we 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 say that with uh, the immaterial phenomena yes. of mind, but there's also matter. You know, we think uh, is different, but we also slice up matter. Absolutely. <laughs> no, relatively. We, we poke it and pro. Oh. <laughs> that too. AC, which is the auto commentary on the profound inner reality, explains the immediate mind explicitly within the Mahayana presentation of eight consciousnesses while rejecting other explanations, such as that the immediate mind is just part of the sixth consciousness that it does not exist at all, or that it is a ninth consciousness. And so when he says the immediate mind, he's talking about the mind that's the immediately preceding condition of any state of consciousness. And it's this really bizarre way of referring to um, the sort of intermediary consciousness in between every moment of uh, content filled consciousness and um, I think the reason it's called the immediate proceeding is that we're not we're we're never really consciously aware of it itself but instead it's it has some other thing as its object it has the Aliyah Vijnana as its object um so, you know, like, why is it referred to as the immediately preceding mind? Why can't we ever talk about it as the next moment of mind? <laughs> and, 
maybe why we were able to experience silence and stillness. Maybe. I think it's also like we don't tend to notice, you know, it's the same way we don't tend to notice gaps until we're trained how to notice gaps that, you know, there's nothing to notice. Right. And so therefore, that's why it's a subtle thing to become aware of. Right. Yeah, that's good. Uh, let's see. In general, the immediate mind can be explained in many different ways. In general, such as its being the seventh consciousness, which usually refers to a moment of any one of the six consciousnesses having just ceased, and thus triggering the following one, the immediate con uh, condition. So he's saying that in general, the mind that's experienced after a moment of any other type of mind is the seventh consciousness, the immediate mind in, in general. Thus in the framework of the eight consciousnesses, it is the mental energy that momentarily facilitates, momentarily facilitates the emerging of the other six consciousnesses from the alia, and I think he means alia vijnana, and they're merging back down into it. This may also be equated with the mental sense faculty, which would be the sixth, the, the sense base for the sixth consciousness, which represents the dominant condition. So the dominant condition is another uh, uh, sort of technical term. There's four conditions that uh, come together to produce a moment of consciousness. And one is the dominant condition, and dominant means what sense base is the consciousness, the consciousness based on. So there's eye uh, sense base, there's ear sense base, there's mental sense base. And so that's the dominant condition. The uh, immediately preceding condition we talked about is the moment of consciousness just before whatever consciousness we're talking about. And then there's the um, object condition, which is uh, the, um, the uh, phenomena that is the object of that consciousness, such as color and si sound and so forth, or memory. And then there's the what's called the causal condition, which is like in the case of visual consciousness, it's a color uh, or light reflecting off matter of a certain color into the eye sense faculty. So that's more like what we would consider to be the, the actual agent of, of producing an effect, the, the main cause would be the causal condition. Okay, so that's the framework for how causation occurs, those four conditions. <clears throat> um, thus, in the framework of the eight consciousnesses, it's the mental energy that momentarily facilitates the emerging of the other six consciousnesses from the alia, and they're merging back down into it. This may also be equated with the mental sense faculty, which is the mind 
which represents the dominant condition of mental consciousness. The immediate mind can furthermore be described as a particular one among the potentials of the alia. A particular one among the potentials. The alia has the potential for everything. And uh, I'm understanding this as meaning the alia vijnana, not the alia. Um, In the context of the 12 ayatanas, this means that the very potential that functions as the gateway for the arising of the mental consciousness is the ayatana of mentation. Because it is related to the ayatanas of phenomena as subject and object, respectively. That's a confusing sentence, if I ever heard one. <laughs> I'm going to skip that one for now. And, and just uh, one little part of it is the ayatanas. There's 12 ayatanas, and the ayatanas are the sense bases and the sense um, objects. So the eye sense base and color, the ear sense base and sound, the mental sense base, or uh, I'm using the term base, and Carl is saying faculty, so I should be using his terminology, faculty. And then the object of the mental sense faculty is mental contents. Uh, let's see, in the, um, since this is without affliction, this, this quality of moment-to-moment -moment attention, it is also called stainless meditation. In the context of the 18 dhatus, it may be presented as the dhatu of mentation. So dhatus is the, uh, the coming together of the sense faculty and the sense object that produces a sense consciousness. And um, so there's six of each of those, altogether 18. And when we say, the, uh, the Datu of Mentation. Um, the Datu of Mentation means the triad of mental sense space, or faculty, mental objects, and mental consciousness. Um, so the it here in this sense, in the context of the 18 Datus, it, stainless mentation or the immediate mind may be presented as the datu of mentation which is uh which comes about in the in the in the uh state where any one of the six consciousnesses having just ceased in the sense of its bearing the nature of being without a real agent and even as the datu of the mental consciousness. That doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> I, I don't know. I should be skipping around more. He's, the thing is, Rongjun Dorje is going to use this term, term immediate mind frequently. And so it's helpful to understand what it means, what he's talking about. And it's a very interesting and unusual phenomena and term 
phenomena meaning that he uses that term all the time and uh, so it's interesting how it it says without a real agent yeah what is that about well let's try a little bit more How about let's skip this next paragraph and we'll go to 111. From the perspective of the six consciousnesses being results. So when we say that, the six consciousnesses. Um, I'm sorry, Derek. But I skipped one paragraph. Oh, okay. It's a big paragraph. Yes, right? it is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, from the perspective of the six consciousnesses being results. So the, the consciousnesses are the result of the coming together or the interaction of the sense faculty and the sense object. It is fine to say that they, the six consciousnesses, arise from their respective dominant conditions, their sense faculty, and their object condition, the appearance or projection of the uh, sense object towards them, and immediate conditions. Immediate conditions is the immediately preceding mentation. In general, the four conditions in Yogacara text simply stand for the entirety of causes and conditions that are produced by the mind. Though these conditions can be understood as sheer dependent origination, they, are, they in fact refer to nothing but particular cases of mind's imaginative play, which is what... Cynthia and Rob were referring to earlier as slicing up space. You know, the the divisions of mind ultimately are imaginary. Uh, Being just nominal pedagogic devices, these conditions do not refer to any really existing entities, let alone external material ones in this world of uh, cognition only. Dependent origination is understood as the infinite web of all the different facts, be they labeled as the four conditions or whatever else. The incessant constructive activity of the mind interacting with each other, just as waves keep crisscrossing, interfering with each other, constantly forming new ones through the power of mutual dependence, object, sense, faculty, and the immediate mind appear as if they were causes and conditions the object and sense faculty as causes, and the immediately uh, preceding mind as uh, conditions. But ultimately there is not arising or ceasing in all of this. So there's no, you know, ultimately there's no discrete entity that can be identified in any one of these phases. It may appear that a magician causes many illusory beings to be born, some to die, some to come, some to leave, but nothing of this really happens because these very beings don't exist in the first place, just as the illusory beings in this example depend on the necessary conditions to produce their appearance. Um, What appears the above conditions are nothing but the products of sheer imagination whose own nature is not realized. This is in the unrealized mind. This is the experience. However, through knowing and realizing their luminous nature as being without arising and ceasing, they are seen for what they truly are, the Dharma Dhatu. And let's skip uh, 
Well, he in the next paragraph, he equates, or he brings in the three natures. So let's go through that one from a slightly different point of view. Uh, this particular text that he's calling DSC presents mentation in terms of three aspects, the afflicted mind, the mental consciousness, and the immediate mind being closely interconnected. In due order, these three represent a, the aspect of stains, the afflicted mind, which is produced through the afflicted mind. B, the sixth consciousness, which specifically focuses on phenomena as its objects. The sixth consciousness is, is unique in that it has everything else as its object, basically. C, the immediate mind that serves as the momentary locus of the arising and ceasing of all consciousnesses. So it's this odd way of referring to the coming together of all the other, the arising and uh, the arising on a moment-to-moment -moment basis of the other six consciousnesses. It's funny because it almost sounds like a platform or a you know a. Not in a physical sense, but it's right. a stage, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like the excited state of the alia, the agitated. The first one is the imaginary nature. So that was the affliction or stained mind, and um, which is absolutely non-existent. The second one appears in accordance with the five sense doors, but it's empty of nature, that's the dependent. And the third one is the sheer aspect of the stirring of consciousness, which can be either factors to be relinquished or their remedies. The relationships between these three aspects of mentation as well as between the sixth and seventh consciousnesses are also described in these other texts. The latter adds, when the immediate mind produces a purified instance of consciousness, such as giving rise to confidence in the Dharma, or in a genuine spiritual friend, the afflicted mind does not stir. Therefore, the immediate mind is also called stainless mentation in the sutras. So partly what's going on is that there's, he's trying to like account for the aspect of our being that is purified as we progress along the path. And how does that, where does that like located in the scheme of the eight consciousnesses and how? Sort of interesting, uh, as, they, as Carl says, pedagogic technique or um, scheme. In terms, of this, in terms of this change of state of the sixth and seventh consciousnesses into the corresponding wisdoms and kayas, which are in that chart at the back of the book, due to Rongjun Dorje's detailed treatment of the immediate mind as the primary aspect of the seventh, his presentation slightly varies from it, elaborates on the classical Yogacara format. So if you look at that chart, there's two versions of this transformation. The classical Yogacara format, being the latter one, says that it is the sixth consciousness, plain and simple, which changes state as discriminating wisdom, and together with the afflicted mind, uh, the Samogakaya. Uh, so there's this nuance and different way of presentation of how the consciousness is transformed into the uh, the eight consciousnesses transform into the five wisdoms and the four kayas, which you can see in the back of that chart. So I'm going to skip the rest of that paragraph. 
and actually skip to the end of this section. It just is, is very detailed and difficult to understand. But at least at least we have some sense of what Rongjun Dorje is referring to when he uses this term immediate mind, the mind of of the moment, momentary mind. Could I ask a question related to the, the last, the thing at the very last sentence of that paragraph where it's talking about purified instance of consciousness and giving rise to dharma and things like that. Would that say in general like virtuous activity or is that an even narrower sense of um, what is considered purified there? Do you have any sense about that? I think it's it's any uh, any meritorious so mental state. Anything that would relate to virtuous activity or I guess mental states related to virtue that would that is that does seem to be the implication, yes. So we're almost at the end of this. Some differences between Rongjung Dorje and Dolpopa. Dolpopa is Mr. Zhentong in a very extreme way. He's sort of like the, the forefather of Zhentong. And uh very radical version of uh, emptiness of other that included asserting uh, Buddha nature, emptiness, enlightened mind as as um, uh, completely real in all ways, completely real and present. This is not the place for a detailed study of all the differences or the uh, definitely existing similarities. So there are many similarities between Rangjian Dorje and Dolpopa, but a few major diverging positions sh should be mentioned. Dolpopa is clearly the first one to use the term, wrong terms Rangjong and Zhentong, in about three, 1330 and 1333. His first two works in which he discusses them are so on and so forth. Uh, so a little history in contrast as mentioned above, Rangjun Dorje's main text and the view were finished by 1327 at the latest. So he finished his main works before Del Polpa finished and completed his works and would uh, start to be available among circles of the educated in Tibet. Um, so, so Rangjun Dorje would not have had access to Dolpopa's text where he uses these terms when Rangjun Dorje was writing his own texts. Also, Rangjun Dorje and Dolpopa met briefly only once, some, somewhere between those years, if at all. Carl is saying that it, some people, there's like this, this uh, supposed account, or there's an account of a supposed meeting between the two of them, but apparently there's conflicting views on this, whether they actually met or or not. These facts make it very unlikely that Dolpopa's view was greatly influenced by Rongjong Dorje's, and they certainly don't lend any credibility to claims still held today by some that the Karmapa invented the Zhentong view, that Dolpopa may have received his terminology Rongjong and Zhentong from the Karmapa, or even that Rongjong Dorje was very much influenced by Dolpopa and his Zhentong view. So, Carl is continuing to complain about present-day scholars or teachers who conflate Rangjun Dorje and Dolpopa, mostly of the Galukpa flavor. 
Such claims are further invalidated when one looks at some of the major differences between these two great masters, and this is not an exhaustive list. Rangjun Dorje never uses the terms. Two, Topopa typically describes both Buddha nature and the Dharmakaya as being really established, truly established. And for those of you who are into it, that term in, uh, in the Tibetan there is uh, that technical term for truly established. It's pronounced dendrup. You, uh, you, uh, the B is silent. Enduring, so it's ongoing as opposed to in, uh, radically impermanent. It's immutable, unchanging, and eternal. Yongdrung. Well, Rangjung Dorjing never uses these terms, so he. Uh oh, we lost him. <laughs> let's hope and we lost. Let's see, I'll continue enduring, immutable, <laughs> and eternal. <laughs> Talk about impermanent. <laughs> <laughs> really? This is like uh, what Shanti De uh, Deva, who levitated while he was giving the ninth chapter and disappeared. <laughs> oh, there he is. Where? In the, well, the dog. <laughs> oh. oh, there we go. So we were just saying it's like Shanti Deva, who levitated during the ninth chapter and then disappeared. <laughs> It's easy to do with Zoom land. I just pushed the book against the laptop oh. and it hit the off button. What a terrible place to have the off and on button. Got to blame it on them, right? Anyway, sorry about that. That's all right. We were in eternal and permanent and forever. And Ali then we were gone. Topopa is the first one to use the term Alia Wisdom which is a really cool term, actually, saying that on the, on the one side of the alia, the alia being the foundation, the base of, of uh, reality, and that reality goes both ways. On the one hand, it goes into the eight consciousnesses, which is samsara, and on the other side, it goes into wisdom of a Buddha, of enlightenment, alia jnana, instead of alia vijnana, v being divided or dualistic consciousness. Um, this term and the ensuing distinction appear frequently in Dopolba's works, such as his mountainous dharma, are absent in Rangjun Dorje. Both, uh, both Dopolba and Rangjun Dorje say that the two realities, the two levels of truth, the ultimate and relative, are inexpressible as the same as being either the same or different. You can't say that they're the same or different. Topopa concludes from this that they are different in the sense of negating sameness. <laughs> what an interesting way to construe that. Or Rangjin Dorje always emphasized the unity of the two realities or appearance and emptiness. Five, in the same vein, Dopopa makes a sharp distinction, sharp distinction between the spheres of ordinary consciousness and non-dual wisdom as being two separate kingdoms. Because consciousness is merely seeming and empty of itself, while non-dual wisdom is really established and only empty of other seeming phenomena. Rong Tong and Zhen Tong. The object of consciousness is exclusively samsara, and the object of wisdom is exclusively nirvana. 
So it's a very reificatory system, Dolpopus. Rajan Dorji makes no such distinction, but constantly refers to wisdom as the actual nature of consciousness, which is referred to in a, with a certain term that Trung Brimshay was quite fond of. Maybe somebody knows what that might be. As highlighted by the origin, sorry, as highlighted by the eight consciousnesses eventually being revealed as the four wisdoms, which would not be possible if they were totally separate. That term is co-emergent. Um, Dolpopa explicitly declares that non-dual wisdom and ultimate reality would stand analysis. And this is a this thing, this uh, phrase, withstand analysis. It's the technical term that's used to describe the process of finding what's real and what's not real. And in the Madhyamaka tradition, it's the process of finding that there is no phenomena that is real and uh, is what it is. And uh, therefore, they say that phenomena do not withstand analysis when you analyze them and break them down analyze them you know using the manyamaka logics or arguments of one or many you break things down infinitely where you try to find out well were they really produced was there like a sequence of cause and an effect that actually gave rise to something you can't identify any supportable uh, way that that way that anything exists and uh, let's see in other words self-emptiness phenomena being empty of a nature of their own pertains only to conventional reality but not to ultimate reality which is not empty of itself consequently the views of the Swatantrikas and Prasangikas which are the two branches of uh, Madhyamaka who assert the opposite are impure. So he doesn't like them. Because uh, Madhyamakas always assert that uh, nothing withstands analysis, including ultimate wisdom and ultimate reality. Rangjan Dorji never says any of this, but instead explains in the ninth chapter of AC that Buddha nature is endowed with the two realities, with ultimate reality being explained ex extensively as natural emptiness, or the 18 emptinesses, and this list of emptinesses of 18 is a famous list that comes from the Prajnaparamita Sutras, free from reference points. Also, the Oxford English Dictionary says that the nature of phenomena is suchness and the perfect nature, which among the three kinds of lack of nature is the ultimate lack of nature. It is to be understood that all kinds of emptiness are divisions derived from this one emptiness. This text also quotes Naropa as saying that this very being empty is the Tathagata heart. This way of being empty is the Buddha nature. The Popa often states that Buddha nature ultimate reality is not or is beyond dependent origination. Mavrangshan Dorje says that mind's own essence, be it with stains or stainless, is free from being the same as or other than dependent origination. Uh, Derek, I didn't understand yeah. the difference there. Yeah, yeah, let's let's try that again. The Pope often states that Buddha nature, ultimate reality, is not dependent origination, or it is beyond 
dependent origination, while Rongjin Dorje says that mind's own essence, be it with stains or stainless, is free from being the same as or other than dependent origination. And that was the same as, the, similar to number four, where um, in, in the Madhyamaka tradition, there's this uh, discussion of, are the two truths the same or different? And the conclusion is that they're beyond being the same or different. Because if you say that they're, uh, they're the same, then you have all sorts of absurd conclusions. And if you say that they're different, then you've made them into actual entities, existing entities. So we're back to inconceivability. Thank you. I couldn't think of that. Uh, let's see. In this vein, Dolpopa says that the unmistaken perfect nature actually belongs to the pure other dependent nature. So he takes the of the three natures, the middle one that Henrietta referred to before as the middle one, the dependent nature. He says there's a pure version of that like the pure Buddha realms, and is only says that the unmistaken perfect nature actually belongs to the pure other dependent nature. So he, he uh, conflates the perfected nature with as being a pure form of the dependent nature, and is only included in the perfect nature in a nominal sense, the perfect nature being the unchanging perfect nature alone. That last part is not clear. Rongjin Dorji clearly prescribes the, describes the perfect nature as actually consisting of both its mistaken, unmistaken, and its unchanging aspects, which supposedly is different, but it's hard to see what that's saying. Dolpopa in his Mount Dharma says that ultimate Buddhahood is taught to be unconditioned, which is also intended to mean that it's free from moments. So it's not changing, so it's not really, it's timeless, rather. It doesn't change, there's no causation involved. This applies equally to non-dual wisdom. Or Rangjun Dorje's Rangjun Dorje says that Buddhahood's discriminating wisdom entails momentary arising and ceasing. That's interesting that he says that Buddhahood's discriminating wisdom is active and therefore it has it arises and it ceases. It's not continuous. These are all like very fine points, like like in Christianity, like how many angels can you put on a pinhead or something, right? You know, to some extent, these are like all really picky and not all of them, some of them are very, you know, the clunkiness of Dol Popa's Jantongpa is a very big uh, point, but some of these are really... It seems to me they're trying to make a distinction between Buddha activity and Buddhahood. It does, doesn't it? Which doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> but in order to have activity, though, you have there needs to be something dynamic, and there's like a beginning and a middle and an end to that situation. You know, you're doing something, and ever and some something else is affected. Like you're inspiring someone to meditate, or or whatever. I mean, you're you're you know you're making the world better. And and so this seems to be an explanation for how how Buddhas help us. It does, doesn't it? 
Thank you. Uh, let's see. As evidenced by these two texts by Rongjin Dorje, as well as Carmen Trinlay's commentary on one of them, and as above reports in uh, the seventh Karmapa describing the view of the third third Karmapa Rongjin Dorje does not hold that the 64 qualities of a completely perfect Buddha exist in a complete and unobscured manner at the time of the ground. There's a big difference. That fully blossomed Buddha nature does not exist at the time of the ground, according to Rongjin Dorje. Whereas Del Popa says it does. And that's what, what why we refer to uh, individuals at the time of the ground as ordinary sentient beings. In other words, he does not hold that the fruition is, is present right now in those beings, while Del Popa does. And let's skip the quote. 12, according to Dobopo, the 32 qualities of the Dharmakaya also pertain to the Rupakayas, and the major and minor marks pertain to the Dharmakaya. So no division between the Kayas. That's that's pretty weird. As almost everybody else, Rangjandori clearly separates the qualities of the Dharmakaya from those of the Rupakayas. Throughout his text, 13, Rangjandori several times says that not realizing the nature of one's mind or Buddha nature of samsara and realizing it is liberation. Boom. That's the traditional Kagyu and also Nyingma mind that realizing the nature of your mind is, in, is nirvana, is enlightenment, and not is samsara. Uh, and Dolpopa rejects this. Uh, 14, as mentioned above, Dolpopa says that the five Maitreya works do not represent different tenets, but all teach nothing but Shantong. <laughs> with even the Abhisamaya Alamkara containing nothing but Zhentong. Nothing that is Rongchong. Rongchong Doji says the Abhisamaya Alamkara clearly teaches on the middle cycle of the Buddhist teachings, lack of characteristics, while the Mahayana Sutra Alamkara explains all sutras in the first and the middle cycle. And the Uttara Tantra comments on the sutras of the last cycle. So he has a, a view that Maitreya's texts span the three turnings. The Pope following almost all later Gentomas consistently asserts that just as our Nagarjuna and other Maitreya so Madhyamakas, uh, so also Maitreya Song and Vasubandha are all great Madhyamakas. He, he claims that they were all singing the same tune all the time. And he explicitly includes templates such as the three natures under Madhyamaka. Madhyamaka. Rangjit Dorje makes no such claims, but cl clearly distinguishes the traditions of Yogacara and Madhyamaka. Of course, there are also agreements to be found between them, such as denying that the ultimate is a non-implicative negation. That's a big one, right? All the Rangtongpas, all the Galupas, the the main assertion is that um, the ultimate nature, the ultimate truth is a non-implicative negation. Asserting that, secondly, asserting that the essence of Buddha nature during the ground path and fruition is the same. Asserting that the fruition of Buddhahood is not something newly produced through the path. And asserting that the foremost masters from both traditions agree on the ultimate view. Well, according to Rong Jun they, they would disagree on the relative view. 
And let's see this section on the commentators. I just want to read a little part of this on page 118. So this is, let's see, one, two, three, the fourth paragraph in this section, Henrietta. Uh, he lists the following reasons. I decided to translate these two commentaries by John Guncontrol. He talks about some other commentaries and um, and then he says, why did I translate John Guncontrol's commentaries? And these are his reasons. They are the only available actual commentaries. So the other ones are not available or they're not actually commentaries on those two key texts, which are uh, NT is uh, pointing out the Buddha essence and NY is distinguishing wisdom and consciousness. Many passages in both texts are either literally from these other texts or based on it. And uh, which, uh, let's see, number two, many passages in Jonga Kongchul's commentary are literally from Rongjung Dorje's other works. So Jonga Kongchul is masterfully uh, explaining these two short, profound texts using Rongjung Dorje's other texts, basically. Additionally, he identifies uh, many of the passages from Indian texts that Rongjung Dorje's uh, very cryptically, cryptic short texts you uh, incorporate. The Tibetans were fond of plagiarism, and so they liberally included other texts within their texts, portions of other texts, without reference. So he's saying that John Cultural tells you where these are from, which is very helpful to see and understand. And uh, the entire outline of John Cultural's commentary is identical to uh, Rongjun Dorje's own outline of the Tathagata heart. And finally, throughout John Cultural's commentaries on these three key t texts, he never mentions the terms Rongtong and Zhentong. So he, like Rongjun Dorje, he keeps away from this whole scheme. Even though John Cultural is a self-proclaimed Zhentongpa, he doesn't impose that scheme, his views really, on Rongjun Dorje's works, which is a very smart thing to do. Following, obviously, strictly following Rongjun Dorje's own approach, which is quite remarkable for several reasons. First, elsewhere, such as in TOK, uh, stands for Treasury of Knowledge. Zhang Kongchul identifies Rongjun Dorje repeatedly as a Zhentongpa. So Zhang Kongchul himself labels Rongjun Dorje as a Zhentongpa. Secondly, these various texts could be read uh, could be readily interpreted in terms of Zhentong. So, you know, he leaves it up to the interpreter as opposed to imposing his own scheme on them. Thirdly, John McCauchel indeed never hesitates to give such an interpretation of the same topics in his own works, usually clearly identifying himself as a Zhentongpa, frequently relying on Taranata. So Taranata is a descendant in the tradition of Dolpopa, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, 300 years later, but who's who's uh, very much like a reformed Zhentongpa, you might say, or a conservative Zhentongpa, <laughs> or moderate Zhentongpa. Um, 
relied on Taranatu, who is one of the most outspoken Zhenchongpas. However, in his commentaries in the above three texts, John Mukacho follows Rom Zhenjorji's synthesis of classical Yugachar and Madhyamaka in a very faithful manner, not only identifying the texts that Rom Zhenjorji works rely upon, but often supporting them with further quotations from both traditions. And, and then he, he quotes, I'm going to skip a bunch of stuff, but he quotes these uh, very long quotes from uh, Tronga Rimshe, and he, he feels they're important enough to quote at length, so I thought we should go through them. Um, it is oral commentary on this text, NT, and uh, which one is, I, I can't remember which one is NT. NT is the Tathagataharta, I've been right, good. In his oral commentary on the Tathagataharta text. Um, and so you can find, uh, there's a book called On Buddha Nature by Tronga Rimshe, which I believe this comes from. That is the uh, tra is the publication of the transcription, edited transcription of Tronga Rimshe's oral commentary on Rongjim Dorje's text on the Tathagataharta. Uh, Tronga Rimshe says the following about the reasons for studying these two texts. And uh, Carl assumes that this applies equally to other texts by the third karma presented in this book, which is why he includes them. The fact that we're beings within samsara means that we have to experience various kinds of sufferings. In case that was a surprise. Hope that wasn't a surprise to anybody. But, uh, so what we need to do is ultimately attain complete freedom from all these different sufferings. The way to achieve that is to eliminate the faults or defects that we have within our own mind. The Buddhas and Bodhisattvas have been able to reach the level of perfect bliss, and so we need to do the same. Can we do that? Yes, we can do it, because we ourselves possess Buddha nature, and the way to achieve that result is to meditate. In order to meditate within the Buddhist tradition, there are the instructions of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. Then to do those meditations, if one knows clearly how one meditates and what the result of, of the meditation is, if one knows what needs to be known for this meditation, then there will be no difficulty in doing the practice. An emphasis on knowing like what we're doing in meditation, understanding the whole scheme of meditation, whereas it will be difficult just to start directly on the meditation without a clear understanding. For this reason, there is this text which gives the teachings on the Buddha nature as a guide for one to meditate upon. And uh, Cynthia is holding up the book called On Buddha Essence, which is Trong Rimshe's oral commentary on this, this text. And um, he continues, John McCauschel says that when one meditates, one needs to know the reasons for the meditation, which means that one has to have the meditation accompanied by the possession of the view. If one has meditation without the view, it is said that one is like a man without any hands who's trying to climb the side of a cliff, whereas if someone has the view but doesn't meditate, that is like a rich person who is also a miser. If one both understands and meditates, then John McCulloch says that is like a bird flying through the sky that has the right wing of meditation and the left wing of understanding. It's an, an interesting explanation in that um, other teachers or places, um, the Kagyu tradition is supposedly the tradition of finding the view within meditation. 
and starting with meditation. Just meditate and the view will emerge. But this is a very different view being presented here. That one needs to understand the view in order to meditate properly. Um, there's clearly a, a interdependent relationship between the two where if you don't meditate, you won't really understand the view. And if you don't really understand the view, you don't really understand your meditation. So it's like they have to go hand in hand or wing and wing. That's why we're wing. here to understand the view. That's right. <laughs> That's why this sort of course is, is helpful. Because uh, uh, hopefully it's not the only thing and people are also meditating, which we do at the beginning. In order to help in one's meditation of Mahamudra, it would be helpful to be able to distinguish between what are the consciousnesses and what are the wisdoms. In order to get the benefit of that understanding, Rangjan Dorji writes this text, the distinction between them. There's also the wisdom that arises in Mahamudra, the root of which is the Buddha nature, and so in order to understand that, he writes this other text on the Buddha nature. So these two texts are branch texts to aid one in one's practice, which is why we're reading this book, is because they're said to be the main aids for uh, meditation, understanding the view to inform the meditation. Elsewhere, Chong Rimshay describes the relationships of the different kinds of consciousnesses, both among each other and with the nature of the mind in more detail, and how an understanding of the benefits of this benefits meditation. As long as sentient beings dwell within conditioned existence known as the impure phase, when, when we talk about three phases, the impure phase of a, of a confused sentient being like me, the, uh, and then there's the impure and end pure phase, which is on the paths when you've made some progress, and then there's the pure phase of enlightenment. But in the impure phase, mind expresses itself in the form of eight collections of consciousness. As a result of Dharma practice and meditative concentration, the eight kinds of consciousnesses will be hopefully purified. At that point, they will transform and thus reveal themselves to be the five kinds of primordial awareness. In order to understand the essence of these five kinds of awareness, we first have to look at the eight collections of consciousness to understand the wisdoms. Very interesting statement. Most of us, I think, would, would have a hard time correlating the consciousnesses and the wisdoms and understanding how they inform each other. But um, as a result of Dharma practice, the eight kinds of consciousness are purified. Uh, I read that, sorry. Understanding how consciousness transforms itself into primordial awareness also helps us to understand the way the path to Buddha, the paths to Buddhahood are traversed and which kinds of result can be attained by each path. Furthermore, also, it contains a temporary benefit for our meditation practice, which is to know how meditation functions. This is valid for meditation on the body of a deity as well as for other kinds of meditative concentration, such as calm abiding, shamatha, or deep inside vipassana. For those times when we just let our minds rest in itself, it is very beneficial to know about the characteristics and divisions of the eight kinds of consciousness. For the meditation on the nature of your own mind, it's customary to ask your teacher for pointing out instructions. Oh, hey, uh, by the way, <laughs> ask your teacher. Some practitioners are lucky enough to realize their true nature of mind straight away 
upon receiving pointing out. Whereas others, probably most others, merely perceive a sensation of it, a certain experience of the true nature of mind. But if they don't know exactly how mind and the consciousness is function, their experience will dissolve after a few days. So you get a little zap, and then, because you don't really understand it in the overall context, it disperses. The understanding of mind and the eight kinds of consciousness is obtained through the highest understanding prajna of listening and reflecting. When we really meditate on this basis, the third, third type of prajna, and glimpse the true nature of mind, we will be able to steadily increase our experience of it through all subsequent meditation. That's why it's extremely useful to know about the eight kinds of consciousness. This part is very interesting about uh, visualization practice. A beginner who visualizes the body of a deity and doesn't know the distinctive characteristics of the distinct aspects of consciousness would think that the deity must be seen as clearly during the mental meditation, which visualization is, as if seen directly with the eyes. The eyes, however, have a much coarser way of perceiving concrete forms. Beginners do indeed meditate in the hope of attaining such clarity. Nevertheless, it will not arise because the meditation on a deity does not happen through the medium of the eye consciousness, but through the medium of the mind consciousness. The objects of the mind consciousness are much less clear. Mind consciousness is Sorry, the mind consciousness most definitely does not work like the eye consciousness. That's why some meditators who perceive a vague mental image think they're not capable of meditating correctly on a deity. The result is that they develop an aversion for their meditation. Those, however, who understand that each consciousness perceives in a different way know that the mental images aren't as clear as the forms perceived with the eyes, and therefore they're content with their meditations. Uh, they know how to meditate, do indeed meditate, unless their meditation works well. Interesting uh, little tidbit for those of us that do any type of visualization practice. The eye consciousness is thought-free. It is not in the least able to meditate on a deity. It merely perceives what's in its sight, but it cannot visualize as such if the mind consciousness, it is the mind consciousness that visualizes the deity. While the mind consciousness is meditating, there is no real external object, as is the case when the eye perceives form. Nevertheless, there is a kind of image of the object that appears to the mind consciousness. This image is created by the mind itself. As soon as the mind wavers, the object that it has created will change as well and at once be unstable. When the mind becomes more stable, it's able to keep the self-created appearances longer. Whether the visualization of the deity or in our meditation is clear or not depends solely on the stability of our mind. And this is exactly what we're training in when we meditate on a deity. In the meditation on calm abiding also, it's not the five sense consciousnesses that meditate, but the mind consciousness. It's very interesting. Usually we think that like we're when we're meditating on the breath in shamatha practice, that it's the sense consciousness that we're meditating through, right? He says something different. Some practitioners believe that when they constantly see objects with their eyes while meditating on calm abiding, their meditation is impaired, or that when they perceive sounds with their ears, their meditation will not be that beneficial. You know, it's like feeling like you need to be in a completely removed 
situation in order to meditate in shamatha. And he's saying, no, it's your mind consciousness that's in shamatha. It doesn't matter what your eyes see or your ears hear. It's irrelevant. However, the five sense consciousnesses cannot distract our mind either. The eyes indeed see forms, but this does not disturb the meditation in the least. <laughs> Maybe for him. <laughs> uh, because the sense perceptions does not involve any thoughts. It's only a matter of mere appearances. This is the reason why we don't have to stop them. We would not even be able to nor do we have to modify anything in any way. The most important consciousness by far is the mind consciousness that acts as the root for all attachment and aversion, all happiness and suffering. Thus it is as important for our daily life as it is for our meditation. <coughs> it is only the mind consciousness that can meditate in the context of the three activities of Buddhist practice, namely listening reflecting and meditating, the mind consciousness plays the largest part. Listening happens immediately after the arising of an ear consciousness, which itself merely perceives the sounds of the words, but which cannot itself connect the sounds to any meaning. You could say the same for reading. It would be the mind consciousness that arises after the connection between seeing the words and and. Uh, and thereby the mind consciousness understands the meaning. Reflecting about the meaning of the words is undertaken solely by the mind consciousness, which is also responsible for meditating. Um, oh, let's see. The, these, there are the five sense consciousnesses that clearly perceive and have direct contact with the object. And then there's the mind consciousness that merely perceives its own self-created images of these objects. And therefore these objects appear as vague, wavering, or unclear. Another difference between the five sense consciousnesses and the mind concerns time. The sense consciousnesses can only perceive in the very present moment. They have no sense of time. That's why I'm always late. Whereas the mind consciousness can think about the past, present, and future. The five sense consciousnesses are like a mute with good eyes. They perceive clearly, but they're not able to express themselves. Thoughts are like blind people who are gifted speakers. The mental consciousness does not perceive what the sense consciousness is perceived, but chatters about its own vague images. While meditating with a focus, the mind consciousness necessarily attains a certain conceptual activity. This also is very radical. Normally we think that when we're meditating on the breath, it's a non-conceptual meditation, but it's a conceptual meditation. While meditating without a focus, on the other hand, you simply let your mind relax so that it is not possible for either positive or negative thoughts to arise. In this case, the clarity aspect of mind is not interrupted. Because of its continuous clarity aspect, the mind indeed perceives everything. Uh, it is just that the rough thoughts, such as I went here and did this or that, dissolve. Whereas the mind consciousness is involved in each meditation, the seventh consciousness, the Kalesha mind, is not. From within the eight collections of consciousness, <clears throat> the Kalesha mind is the only consciousness for which there is no meditation method at all. <laughs> it's not invited to meditate. You've got to leave your seventh consciousness at the door. Right? There should be a little sign. So is he talking only... Here. 
how does this relate to our discussion of the two parts of the seventh before? Is the immediate mind? Yeah, it's it's odd. It's odd. It's like you know. On the one hand, earlier we were talking about the immediate mind being like the the moment to moment attention. Yeah, and that now is he's saying. Well, and ego never shows up in my meditation. Oh, I never even heard its name. <laughs> I don't know. This is a little confusing, to be honest with you. Yeah, I always, I mean, I, I remember being confused about why the immediate mind seems like it should be sixth rather than seventh. Yeah, yeah. That slicing up space thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that in that case, they're saying that the the immediate mind is what um, happens after a moment of sixth consciousness, where you know we think about, where we uh, consider something, and then we are aware that we've considered something, something like that. I see it as uh, it's the seventh is a bridge. So yeah. you need that to get to the Ali Vishnana. Or to the sense consciousness. Between the senses. And it goes both ways, yeah. Otherwise, yeah, there's no it connection. Goes back and forth, and it gets confused. And... Yeah, it seems like a lazy Susan, actually. <laughs> Revolves around. And the, the consciousness is there at the table, right? And in the middle is the Ali Vishnana, or the table is the Ali Vishnana. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, let's see. The all-based consciousness plays its role in the meditation as well. When the mind rests calmly with equipoise and meditates, when it relaxes and becomes stable, and when there arise barely any thoughts, then the mind consciousness rests within the mere clarity aspect of the all-based consciousness. Through relaxing the mind, mind consciousness, and the all-based consciousness rest together in the mere continuous clarity aspect of the mind. The clarity aspect of mind is an unfabricated cognition, a mere perception, sheer cognition. The true nature of mind, when the coarse thoughts of the mind consciousness are pacified, it comes to rest in the all-bases and both abide within the true nature of mind. In some, the above text by the third karma pro not only provide the general view that underlies all Buddhist meditation practice, but also serve to directly inform the very process of being engaged in such practices. So some confusing stuff, some difficult to understand stuff, but I, I think the overall idea is to like, is to make us think deeply about like what's going on in our minds. When we're meditating, when we're not meditating, how does our mind work? What what are the different aspects of it? Because, as they said, uh, as Carl said, and as Strongerimshe said at length, the main factor in it, in progressing along the path is the mind. Is understanding the mind, understanding the nature of the mind is enlightenment, and not understanding it as samsara. So, the nature of the mind is that, in the relative sense, it has all these different aspects all these different sort of corners and parts and how do they work together in order to understand the true nature of the mind that's beyond all those parts and aspects we actually have to understand all those aspects so we can sort of work our way out of the web the cobweb it's so lastly uh carl puts the root text 
from Rongjong Dorje of these two famous root texts in the appendix, which I thought was a little bit odd to relegate them to the appendix. But he's got them in the uh, in the commentary by John McConchel, but still I would have thought they should be right up at the front and presented separately. So they are difficult to understand, but I thought maybe we could read through them to get things started out. So on page 353, we have uh, what he's been referring to as NT, not empty, NT. The treatise on pointing out the Tathagata heart. I pay homage to all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. That's a lot. That's a lot of them. It is said through beginninglessness. Oh, sorry. It is said, though beginningless, it contains, it entails an end. And I think we'll quickly see why a commentary is needed on these texts. Because, like, what is he talking about? Though beginningless, it entails an end. I think we're talking about samsara, is that right? What is naturally pure and consists of permanent dharmas is not seen, since it is obscured by a beginningless cocoon, just as in the example of a golden statue being obscured, we're talking about Buddha nature. The datu of time without beginning is the matrix of all phenomena. That's a cool one, the datu of time without beginning. Never seen that before. Because it exists. Wow, it exists. He's asserting that something exists. All beings and also nirvana are obtained because the, the matrix of phenomena the Dhatu of time. A passage in the Tantra says sentient beings are Buddhas indeed. However, they are obscured by adventitious stains. If these are removed, they are Buddhas. Here, beginningless means that there is absolutely nothing before that. The time is this very moment. How could it come via? Why does he use via? <laughs> How could it come via somewhere else? That's a weird translation. The basic element is without creation. Creator. Creator, thank you. Dharmadhatu. Since it bears its own characteristic, which is different than all relative phenomena do not bear their own characteristic. They're empty of the characteristic that makes them what they are. Thus we call them empty. But the Dharmadhatu is not... It is called that way. Since it bears its own characteristic, it is called that way. The dharmas are explained as appearing as both samsara and nirvana, what, which is called the ground of the latent tendencies of ignorance. The movement of the formations of correct and false imagination is the producing cause. The, this causal condition is explained as the alia, the foundation, the, the ground of, of being. The matrix, matrix is presumably a, a translation of garba. The matrix is the heart of the victors. False imagination rests on the purity of mind. So here we have like what rests on what. This purity exists in that way. What way? That way. <laughs> Though it exists <coughs> through ignorant imagination, it is not seen, and therefore is samsara. 
when that meaning the ignorant imagination is eliminated it is nirvana which is conventionally called the end so in the first line of the text though beginningless there is an end samsara is beginningless and the end is samsara uh, sorry nirvana beginning and end depend on nothing but imagination because the, the thought that there was confusion or enlightenment is the imaginary nature through wind-like formation. Karma and afflictions are created through these skandhas, dhatus, ayatanas, all dualistically appearing phenomena are displayed. So we have, um, we have uh, imagination, which rests on the purity of mind. False imagination rests on the purity of mind. And then through wind-like formation, and who knows, like, where did the wind come from? Where did the wind come from? Karma and afflictions it, are created. Sorry. Does that refer to something specific, wind-like formation? It sounds so specific. Well, I, I think he's, like, using the, the analogy of the creation of uh, world realms after the mm. destruction of world realms in between aeons when aeons end and are created and there's different they, they use the elements as the creative forces and as the destructive forces and wind is turns out to be like the ultimate force mm. stronger than all the others uh, Cynthia I was also wondering if it could have to do with long different meaning of wind yeah, maybe lung being the inner energy of the body or energies in the body. Um, I think it's more like a qualifier for formation, the fourth skanda type thing. But right, but sometimes they talk about the the basis for arising is you know the non-purified wounds of our body. Winds. Yeah, that's true. Which is lung. So through these, through this stepwise process, all dualistically appearing phenomena are displayed. The one who adopts and rejects these is mistakenness. Through rejecting mind's own appearances, where should they cease? Through adopting mind's own appearances, what should come about? Is clinging to duality not delusive? Understanding this indeed, this is indeed said to be the remedy. But the thought of non-duality is not real either. Just thinking about non-duality doesn't do anything. For the lack of thought just turns into a thought. <laughs> you thought about emptiness, dissecting form and so on into parts. Are you not mistaken yourself? You're just conceptual elaboration. Nevertheless, this was taught in order to stop the clinging to reality it can be a helpful scheme. All is neither real nor delusive, held to be like a reflection of the moon and water by the learned. Just this ordinary mind is called Dharmadhatu, and heart of the victors. It is neither to be improved by the noble ones nor made worse by sentient beings. It, uh, it may no doubt be expressed through many conventional terms, but its actual reality is not understood through expressions. As for the unimpeded play of this, the 64 qualities are a coarse classification. Each one is said to consist of tens of millions. So 64 is just shorthand. 
knowing what is the case and what is not the case, karma and maturation, knowing the constitutions, faculties, and inclinations of beings, I added of beings, the paths that lead everywhere, the dhyanas, the divine eye, recollecting the places of rebirth and peace. These are the 10 powers. So these are the 10 powers of a Buddha, knowing all these different things, actually knowing <clears throat> all of this stuff. The four fearlessnesses based on these 10 powers are enlightened realization of all phenomena, teaching the obstacles, teaching the path, and cessation, all being indisputable fearlessnesses. Due to that cause, the 18 unique qualities are unmistakenness. So due to the fearlessnesses as cause, we have the 18 um, unique qualities of a Buddha. Unmistakenness, lack of chatter. <laughs> You know, the others are, are rather profound and uh, lack of chatter ranks. It's the second one. Undeclining awareness, constant meditative equipoise, poise, lacking the plethora of discriminating notions, lacking unexamining indifference, no decline in striving vigor, recollection, samadhi, prajna, and the vision of the wisdom of liberation. Activities being preceded by wisdom and being unobscured with regard to time. Always being on time. Being endowed with these 32 is the Dharmakaya. At present, so the 32 or the 18 plus the 4 plus the 10 plus, I don't know, 10 and 4 is 14 plus 18 is 32. There you go. At present, we oppose them since we lack certain to be a about what is, just as it is, we produce the imaginary, construing what is non-existent as existent. The conceptuality produced by this is the other dependent. The conceptuality produced by this is the other dependent. <clears throat> Through not knowing the perfect nature, we are agitated by our own doing. Alas, and those who realize these qualities of the Dharmakaya to be what is real. This is the knowledge of reality. Even their present little power is reality. Casting away this knowledge, we fabricate what is unreal and are carried away by the agitation of pursuing it. Understand now what is just as it is, and you attain power in it. In this, there is nothing to be removed and not the slightest to be added. Actual reality is to be seen as it really is. Whoever sees actual reality is released. The basic element is empty of what is adventitious. Dharmadhatu, uh, which has the characteristic of being inseparable, but it is not empty of the unsurpassable dharmas, which have the characteristic of being inseparable. So he's repeating this famous phrase from the Uttara Tantra about the Buddha nature. <clears throat> In this, the nature of the two Rupakayas is the 32 major and minor marks. Uh, the attained qualities are your own body. This body is not created by itself. Cha, T, Ishvara, Brahma, real external particles or hidden objects or cloning through the refinement of the impure transmutations of apprehender and apprehended of the five gates 
doubtless five senses. At that point, the conventional term attainment is applied. <clears throat> Therefore, nadis, the winds in the body, vayus, are the uh, energies that uh, blow, or the the, um, the winds that travel along the channels. Nadis are the channels, vayus are the winds, and tilakas are the drops of essence, life essence. Normally we hear nada, nadi, prana, and bindu, but Carl is using the original Sanskrit as as is Rangjan Dorje. He mentioned that. When pure are the pure rupakayas, unpurified they are the impure rupakayas. For example, in an encrusted blue barrel, its qualities do not shine forth through cleansing it with a woven cloth and an alkaline solution, cleaning it with acid and a towel, and cleansing it with pure water and cotton from kashi. It becomes pure, the gem that is the source, fulfilling all needs and desires. Interesting that blue barrel is like the wish-fulfilling precious gem. Uh, likewise, in order to cleanse the blue barrel of mind from the three incrustations, afflictive and cognitive obscurations and those of meditative absorption. So usually there's two obscurations, but sometimes they add um, obstructions to meditative absorption as a third type of obstruction. It, meaning uh, the blue barrel of mind, is purified on the path of accumulation and preparation, the seven impure boomies, and then the three pure boomies through false imagination, um, meeting pure imagination. There is freedom from imagination. Just like two wooden sticks are burned. This is the freedom from the fourfold clinging to characteristics, the conceptions about what is to be relinquished, remedies, suchness, and fruition. <clears throat> the fourfold clinging to characteristics. That's interesting. At that point, in those who have the kai of space, the flowers of the marks, major marks, will blossom impure, impure and pure, and utterly pure. The three phases in due order are expressed as the three phases of sentient beings, bodhisattvas, and tathagatas. But Buddhahood is nothing newly arisen, being the same before as after. It is the changeless Buddha heart. It is the freedom from stains that has expressed this change. Those who engage poor views think that the Buddha qualities are without cause or not in ourselves but produced through external causes and <clears throat> conditions. How are these different from non-Buddhist views on permanence and extinction? The appearing of momentarily arising and ceasing formations is comparable to impure formations. If it were not like this, the continuum of the enlightened activity of the Rubakayas would be interrupted. However, this is not expressed by the name formations, but by discriminating wisdom. What has the nature of the great elements and so on and is associated with apprehension displays its powerful essence. As for both mistakenness and unmistakenness, there is no difference as far as appearance goes. The difference is whether there is clinging to duality or not. If it were not like this, how could the enlightened activity of the victors engage in anything? If engagement meant uh, uh, some uh, ignorance, given the examples of a wish-fulfilling jewel and such explains the display of thought-free power. But not that this is solely an appearance in the mind stream of others. If it were, wisdom would become the mind stream of others, but that is unacceptable. Wisdom would be mistakenness. 
you know, if sentient beings were were Buddhahood, were Buddhas as they are, then it just doesn't make sense. If it is asserted that wisdom grasps at its own at its own appearances, then also a mirror would possess conceptions of grasping at what appears in it. The variety of the mistakenness of sentient beings appears as the objects of wisdom, but wisdom is not attainted by mistakenness. For example, in space, the arising and ceasing of the great elements appears, but space is not tainted and is without arising and ceasing. Let's see, who can take over reading for me for a minute? I have to do something, come right back. How about Liz? So likewise, likewise, the wisdom of the victors engages sentient beings, but is untainted. This is not expressed by the name mistakenness. It is called all-accomplishing wisdom. Mentation rests, resting pure of the three obscurations, is equality, which is peace, because it is endowed with great love and compassion, the Sambhokakaya and so forth, appear for those to be guided. This is stated in order to refute some people's claim of being like Arhat-o, the Hinayana, once Buddhahood is attained. Wisdom is permanent in three ways. Being permanent by nature is the Dharmakaya. Being permanent in terms of continuity is a Sambhokakaya, and being so in terms of the uninterrupted series is the Nirmanakaya. Relating to these, there are three impermanent phenomena. Mentally fabricated emptiness is not permanent, the moving conceptual mind is not permanent, and the conditioned six collections are not permanent. However, in these, there is threefold permanence. The three impermanent phenomena are the stains, while the threefold permanence is wisdom as such. It is not comparable to the self of the Tertikas, since that is imputed by mind, while the Buddha heart is not. It is not comparable to the peace of Shravakas and Pratekya Buddhas. Pratyeka Buddhas, for it displays all the qualities of the Rupakayas. These are not comparable to the bodies of sentient beings, since they are not produced by contaminated conditions. Buddhas will not regress, since what is has become manifest just as it is. The stains never arise again, since there is freedom from any imagination of difference. Therefore, this mind as such, Buddhahood, exists right now, but we don't know it. At the time of realization, just as with the subsiding of heat in iron and blurred vision in the eyes, the mind and wisdom of a Buddha are not said to be existent or non-existent. Since there is no arising ultimately, in terms of true reality, there is no liberation either. Buddhas are just just as space, and sentient beings have the same characteristic. Since the here and the hereafter are unarisen, there is no natural nirvana either. Therefore, conditioned formations are empty. The sphere of omniscient are empty. The sphere of omniscient wisdom.
Since it is subtle, it is not an object of study. Since it is the ultimate, it is not one of reflection. Since it is the profound nature of phenomena, it is not one of the mundane meditations and so forth. It is the sphere of personally experienced wisdom. Confidence in the self arisen gives rise to the ultimate. Alas, since they do not realize this way of being, childish beings roam in the ocean of samsara. Through the power of the great sage Manjushri Gosa, Maitreya, and Avalokiteshvara, this was written by Rangjung Dorje. May all sentient beings know this Buddha heart perfectly and without error. This completes the determination of the Buddha heart, the essence of the Vajrayana. Interesting, the essence of the Vajrayana, that's cool. Can we take a few more minutes past our end time and do the next text? Is that okay? A few pages. How about, uh, who wants to read this one? Gail? No? Uh, let's see. Um, Eric Strom? Hello? What? <laughs> Eric, read the, read the next text for us on page 361, the treatise that distinguishes between consciousness and wisdom. I just we, asked Eric, which, yeah. which, do you remember which abbreviation this was? This is NY. This is NY, New, thanks. New York, New York. With, <laughs> with feeling, but not too slow, Eric. You actually want me to read this? Yeah, is that okay? God, wait, try to read Okay, um, all right. I pay homage to all Buddhas und Bodhi, and, Bodhisattva, and Bodhisattvas, having und, arrived und. to study. Is your subject? It does, yeah, what a funny typo. Sorry. Having the German, yeah. Having relied on study and reflection in order to immerse myself in the ways of meditation while dwelling in seclusion. I will express how this principle appears. People think that all sentient beings of the three realms arise either from themselves, from something other, from both or without a cause. They say a creator, such as Cha, Ishvara, Brahma, Vishnu, outer particles or a real hidden substance creates myself in the world. The sole all-knowing one taught sentient beings from his realization that these three realms are merely mine. They neither arise from themselves, nor from something other, nor from both, nor without a cause. Phenomena are nothing but dependent origination. While this very dependent origination is empty of a nature of its own, free from being one or different, devoid of being real or delusive, and just like illusions, the moon and water, and so on. From where arises the root of mistakenness? Oh, from where arises the root of mistakenness and unmistakenness? Just as recognizing one's own form due to a mirror and fire due to smoke, through teaching the principle of dependent origination, I will clearly express this realization here. The consciousness of the five sense gates, appropriate form, sound, smell, taste, and tangible objects, or reject them, oh, appropriate, the con oh, the consciousness, that's a verb, the consciousness, the consciousnesses appropriate 
the tangible objects or reject them, which produces the afflictions. When those who have prajna examine carefully what these objects are, they are not established as something external, such as particles, that is, other than the cognizing consciousness. If the substance of objects were other than consciousness, they would not have the same nature. Also, from cognizance that cannot be pinpointed and obstructed, material substance does not arise. Because of that, they have no causal connection. If this is accepted, it is untenable that objects appear to consciousness since they have no connection. Hence, these appearances, however they may manifest, do not exist as objects that are other than consciousness. Their arising from it is like an experience of one's own awareness, whether partless particles or a plateau, appearances are mine. The, purp the purport of this is to realize that Brahma and such are not creating ag agents, since nothing is established as something external to or other than mind. As for the connection between mentation and phenomena, just like in an, in an experience in a dream, this is nothing but one's clinging to focusing on that, whereas real entities do not exist. Thus, this consciousness in its six collections arises as the appearances of reference and sentient beings, clinging to identity, cognizance, and whatever forms of appearances. What are they? If not produced by something other, they are not produced by themselves either, nor are they produced by both or neither of the two. Therefore, according to the words of the victor, everything in samsara and nirvana is merely mind. He says that the dependent origination of the causes and conditions of this lies in the six collections, mentation, and, in the, and the alia. The consciousnesses of the six collections depend on their object conditions. These are the six objects of form and so on. The dominant conditions are the six sense faculties which possess form and are translucent. Both arise from the mind. What, visit, what vividly appears as objects and sense faculties is based on beginningless potentials. Consciousness is what perceives objects, while the formations of mental factors perceive their features, which is based on the mental consciousness. Mentation is, mentation is twofold the immediate and the afflicted mind, due to being the condition for the arising and ceasing of the six consciousnesses, it is the immediate condition. Matching the number of the arising, matching the number of the arising and ceasing of the moments of the six collections, the immediate mind is connected with them. By virtue of a mind immersed in yoga and the words of the victor, this is realized. The other part of this with regard to mind as such entails self-centeredness, holding on to pride, attachment to me and ignorance. Since it produces all views about the perishing collection, it is called the afflicted mind. The mentation immediately after the ceasing of the six consciousnesses is the locus of the arising of consciousness. The afflicted mind is the locus of affliction since it has the capacity to produce and to obscure this mentation has two aspects. For those with special insight, the Buddha taught the Alia, the, the Alia consciousness. It is also taught as support, matrix, or appropriating consciousness. Since all karmas produced by the seven collections are gathered in an unmixed and neutral way, it is called maturational, just as rainwater flows into the ocean. 
Since it produces everything, it is the ground from which all seeds rise, thus being designated the causal condition. Because it dissolves, when the seven collections dissolve, it is also called conditioned consciousness. The nature of the external and internal, this very alia consciousness, is the root of everything to be relinquished. It is said to be overcome through the Vajra-like Samadhi. Once the alia, including the obscurations, is extinguished, it becomes mirror-like wisdom. All wisdoms appear in it without any mind. It is unconfined and ever-present. It realizes all knowable objects, yet is never directed toward them. Since it is the cause of all wisdoms, it is called the Dharmakaya. The afflicted mind is overcome through the heroic stride. Once the afflictions are relinquished through seeing and familiarization, there are no afflictions, no existence, and no peace. This is designated as the wisdom of equality. The immediate mind is seizing, since it seizes the six consciousnesses. Since it causes conceptions, it is conception. It is overcome through perfect prajna and the illusion-like samadhi. Through this, when great poised readiness is attained, the apprehender and its reference change state. This, thus, the change of state of conception, which represents a display of pure realms, wisdom in all times, and being unimpeded in all activities, is discriminating wisdom. Thus, these two wisdoms, through pure cultivation, are the peace of not abiding in either existence or peace, endowed with love and compassion, and display all kinds of kayas and speech for their retinues. In this way, the mandala of the melody of the great Dharma manifests. This treasury of all samadhis and dharanis is called the Sambhogakaya. As for the five sense gates and a part of mentation, true actuality is seen and realized as actuality through the 16 wisdoms, such as poised readiness for cognition, which arise from correct imagination and entail the aspects of the principles of the four realities. Through this, the five sense faculties change state, mastering engagement in all objects and the 1200 qualities of all boomies. The culmination of such mastery is all accomplishing wisdom. It accomplishes the welfare of all sentient beings in all realms through various immeasurable and inconceivable emanations. This is the great Nirmanakaya. The three, the three kayas, including their activities, which are the changes of state of mind, mentation, and consciousness are perfected as the mandala of the Dharma Datu free from reference points that everything that everything in samsara and nirvana without beginning abides free from being one or different is held to be svabhavakaya. In some other texts, the victor taught this as the Dharmakaya. In this case, mirror-like wisdom is called the wisdom kaya and the others, the two rupakayas. Buddhahood is the manifestation of the nature of the five wisdoms and the four kayas. The alia is what possesses the stains of mind, mentation, and consciousness. Its stainlessness is called the heart of the victors. What overcomes impure imagination is pure imagination, from which the power of prajna is of the noble ones arises. Seizing it is taught to be the reality, seizing it is taught to be the reality of the path. Because they do not realize the way of being of the the way of being of the ultimate, the oblivious roam, the ocean of samsara. 
they will not reach the other shore through anything except for this ship of the Mahayana. May all realize this true actuality. All right. Thank you, Eric. Amen. <laughs> this text was composed by Ranjan Dorje in the mountain retreat at Upper Dachin. Dachin means great bliss on the first day of the 10th month of the year. The oink, oink. Thank you. Thank you very much. So let's conclude. Any comments, questions, suggestions, anything else? Next week we dive into the auto commentary and the profound inner reality, which is very cool. Oh, Derek. Presentation. I'm looking forward to it. Yes. So this one ends saying, except for the ship of the Mahayana, whereas the other one ended with Vajrayana. It did, didn't it? Yeah. Different, so, different slants. I think the Buddha nature teaching is viewed as the, the bridge to the Vajrayana, I guess. Uh-huh. And this is uh, sort of more, more straightforward. Yeah, more Mahayana. basic. Yeah. yeah. Which is why I understood it better. <laughs> yes. Likewise. <laughs> yeah. Anything else? Cool. Thank you very much. Good to see you all. Have a good week and look forward to seeing you soon. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the victim's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Did Emily leave tech hosting with anyone? No? Okay. I don't think so. Who are the, uh, let's see, Liz, Liz Green is the host. Uh, okay. Yeah, okay. apparently I am. <laughs> <laughs> right, she hosted you. Thank you, Liz. Bye, everyone. Take care.